So when I submitted these slides, um, I submitted them to the Global Education Group um, for they have to confirm that the references are appropriate, et cetera, et cetera. And I submitted with this title. And then Deborah Weiner, um, who runs the academic portion of Pain Week, uh, said, you know, you, we have you on the program with this title. Is it okay? Did you want to change the title? I said, no, no, keep it program. But I assumed that somebody would change it on the slides. Um, so that's why the slide has a different title. But it's the same talk. Okay, that's that's the big discrepancy. Okay, so these are my disclosures, um, and I sincerely hope that you do not have any. Uh, um, you'll, you'll, I don't do not think that at the end of this talk you'll have any uh, concerns. Um, I know that it's important to. Um, I, I choose to work with industry to advance the field, um, and that means disclosing that I, I, I do research and I do other things, but I hope you will not find any bias at all. So this is a, um, a, I, I, I think this is really an interesting talk, and I hope you think so too. Uh, our objectives are to describe first, the end of this, to describe the consequences of poorly managed acute pain. How many of you primarily do acute pain here? How many of you do chronic pain? And acute. Okay, so you know the consequences. Well, we we though I do uh, in my clinical practice, I do mostly chronic pain, and I am hopeful that acute pain can be done better in the future, so that there's less chronic pain for me to take care of. If that's like the the holy grail, that's one of the holy grails, and that's good. And one of the um, other objectives is to explain and discuss multimodal therapy. We talk about it all the time. Let's see how in reality it can be helpful. And the last objective is to go where maybe some of you have never gone before, which is to discuss new novel analgesics or the concept of new novel analgesics that are in various stages of development that may capitalize upon new science um, and by doing so may allow us to get more benefit with less harm and risk and side effects. And so that's where I'd like to go today. Um, this is an executive summary of this entire talk. Um, and many of it, again, for those of you who do acute pain management, I'm just kind of getting us to a, a level playing field. 80% of all patients continue to experience postoperative pain um, despite being treated with different analgesics. Um, there are admissions, readmissions, um, many outpatient visits as a consequence of poorly managed or suboptimally managed pain and multiple studies and lines of evidence, and I'll show you the actual papers in just a little while, um, demonstrate that poorly managed or less, than, I like to not be punitive there, um, less than ideally uh, managed acute pain may lead, in fact, to chronic postoperative pain. And I don't think there'd be any secret that even with some new analgesics that have been developed, non-opioid analgesics, current pain management strategies, and even multimodal therapy, Current pain management strategies generally include and involve conventional opioids, which can be highly effective for some, but can be also less effective for others and may be restricted by serious side effects. And so better management of acute pain needs to incorporate perhaps the, the understanding and the importance of preventing downline consequences, and that may include multimodal therapy, which aims to be opioid sparing, reducing the opioid load. Um, by targeting different mechanisms of pain and pain relief, and but taking a broader enhanced recovery after surgery, or if, uh, also known as ERAS, 
Um, and there are multiple efforts among acute pain specialists in the country to enhance recovery after surgery so that there's a multidisciplinary approach to patient recovery following surgical procedures. And again, getting back to what role will novel analgesic therapies play in the future. And so this is our roadmap. Um, moderate to severe postoperative pain remains a very, very prevalent issue. You can see that there are three different sources of this information. Dr. Gann, by the way, um, is the current president of the society that is, support, that is developing ERAS approaches. The, I think it's called the American Society of ERAS. Uh, I may be off on that. Please don't shoot me if I'm off. But he is, uh, was at Duke University, is now chairperson of anesthesia at um, Stony Brook. Um, and he had a letter to the editor published yesterday in the New York Times, for those of you who read the Times, uh, concerning our Surgeon General's um, um, letter to us, begging us to use opioids more appropriately and carefully. And basically, he pointed to the role, potentially, of ERAS, of, enhance, you know, of, 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 of better approaches to acute pain management that may help be part of that process. So that's the, you still could read the letter, but that was a summary of it. Um, but that's who that Dr. Gann is, and um, you can see that regardless of, of the study, um, in Carol Warfield's study, she has been at, in Boston at, at, um, at Beth Israel Hospital for many, many years, um, or the Applebaum or Gann article, between 77% and 86% of people continue to experience postoperative with various degrees of intensity. This is kind of a dumb moment. You know this if you're in the acute pain world because you know this happens. So the consequences, um, let's look at some of the economic costs. So readmissions from save-day surgeries, pain in the United States, in, in this data, pain is the most common reason why people will be readmitted. And the mean charges vary, but the important take-home message from this particular um, set of data is that pain is the most common reason why people are readmitted or further treated from same-day surgeries. 38% of people who were readmitted for pain had undergone orthopedic procedures. That's just a point of information. Doesn't mean that orthopedic surgeons are bad people. Okay. Um, pain was the most common reason identified in this study by Coley and colleagues um, for unanticipated admissions or readmissions. So 38% primary reason for hospital return, um, research, having to do more surgery is 21%. Medical reason in general, 14 bleeding, 4%. All the others much smaller. So um, here, here, just kind of switching to where we are in our current landscape, um, there's a real concern. This is only in 2012, so it was a couple of years ago. But the Joint Commission um, put out this Sentinel event alert in which basically um, emphasized, they emphasized the important safe use of opioids in hospitals. And they recognize a couple of points. First, that opioid analgesics still rank among the drugs most frequently associated with adverse drug events. A number of safety measures, including education and monitoring, may in fact reduce the risk of opioid-related adverse events. And key patients warranted, you know, the key approaches need to include um, multimodal opioid-sparing approaches, including non-opioid pain medications. And as part of this alert, they emphasize this, which is now, how many of you are familiar with the recent um, relabeling in the last week or two? Um, of certain opioid analgesics that the FDA just approved to, to um, work to, be, to, to warn us to 
remember that the combination of opioids and benzodiazepines may put people at greater risk of respiratory depression and other bad consequences. So this is along the, the evolving um, uh, understanding that opioids are used as part of a treatment regimen, but we need to hopefully use them more safely. And so these are patients who were considered in this report at the highest risk for oversedation and respiratory depression. And not surprisingly, sleep apnea, morbid obesity, those who snore at older age, no recent opioid use, um, being status post-surgical procedures, especially upper abdominal or thoracic, increased opioid dose requirements, longer, term, longer time receiving general anesthesia during surgery, concomitant use of other sedating drugs, so here's where benzos come in, and having, been a, having a prior history of smoking. Now, inadequate acute pain management, this is not surprising to any of you, I'm sure, has other numerous health and economic consequences, include delayed mobilization, delayed ambulation, increased cardiovascular and pulmonary um, abnormalities, shortened or missed rehabilitation sessions, reduction in quality of life. We ad addressed, to a certain extent, increased cost of care, and this is of great concern. What can we do, and um, those of you who do acute pain management day in, day in, day out, know how much emphasis there are is in preoperative, intraoperative, and postoperative measures to reduce this potential from, from acute to chronic pain. So if you think about what happens um, and, um, you know, does anybody here know what would happen to you if you had a surgical procedure, like a simple surgical procedure? Do you know what happened six weeks later, four weeks later? Anybody here undergone a hernia repair? All right, anyone have, have any idea what the likelihood, what the reported literature supports in terms of chronic pain after hernia, simple hernia repair? What percentage of people do you think experience? 5%, 10%? Okay, hold that, hold that thought, okay? Because once you activate a cascade of events, here's the neurologist coming out of me, but here, uh, uh, once you start activating peripheral and central factors that um, either transiently or in a sustained fashion, turn on the central nervous system, which is the central processing unit of the system. There are people who, for a variety of reasons, the degree of inflammation, the amount of surgery, genetics, things we don't know about, um, a variety of other risk factors that we're exploring, may actually develop changes in their central nervous system that sustain this pain and this pain experience, even after all the inflammatory and, and healing issues have subsided. And so that's the neuroplasticity, go, gone, you know, girls gone wild, that whole thing. It's like neuroplasticity, I, I've never participated, I've never watched it or anything like that. I swear to God, I know we're in Vegas, but I'm serious. Um, 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 but it, it's like a central nervous system that doesn't know how to turn itself off. And, and so people don't know who's who. So let me just jump to inguinal hernia repair. Hernia repair, the incidence of chronic post-surgical pain, according to these, num you know, these references, and there's a third reference that, that we didn't, I did not include, is, ranges from 19 to 40%. Now, someone said 5 or 10%. You did. Um, and you would not have won the prize. Uh, okay? But look at just amputation, post-amputation surgical-related pain, 57 to 62%. Post-breast surgery, 27 to 48% in range. Thoracotomy, 52 to 61%. Just good old-fashioned coronary bypass surgery, 23 to 39%. Even C-section, 
And so here are some factors that can be put forth as contributing, but more importantly, it'd be best to say we don't know exactly why some people do and some people don't. So we know what we can try to do, and we'll talk about this in a second in more detail, is to control the pain, reduce the pain, we try to get people heal you know, back to normal as soon as possible. Now, the, these are numbers of surgical procedures in the United States in thousands. So that's 159 times 10 to the third, which is over a million procedures, I believe, that it works out to. Okay? So a lot of procedures being done. Um, the development of post-surgical pain has been documented to be associated with the development of chronic pain. So in a long-term evaluation of people who were post-thoracotomy, 149 people, um, six, um, those who experienced severe acute pain had a much greater likelihood of developing chronic pain and those who experienced a prolonged duration, so one month or greater of severe acute pain, had a much greater likelihood of experience. So that's consistent. Anybody know what the risk factors are for developing post-herpetic neuralgia from acute herpetic neuralgia? There are four major ones. Female sex, don't, don't shoot the messenger. It is what it is. Um, age 70 and greater, but the greater degree of pain at the onset of the outbreak of shingles and the um, duration of pain during the um, outbreak as well, as well as the, the pre-outbreak painful symptoms. So these are kind of consistent with how our nervous system is wired. So general patent, and this is, so this, this quote is taken from an article by uh, Dan Carr. Dan Carr is associated with Tufts University as an anesthesiologist and endocrinologist by training and is current president of the American Academy of Pain Medicine and is very interested, he runs a program at Tufts called Pain and Public Policy, and he's very interested in pain as a public health issue. Um, and he realized that in, in this article, it was talking about acute pain representing the initial step on a path that could culminate in chronic pain. And you see this, this um, a quote by General Patton, pain is just like any enemy. You keep moving around and the enemy cannot hit you. Same way with pain. The quicker you break away from the pain, the quicker you will drive the pain out of your system. You sit too long and you will not be able to move. Another proverb you know, according to a guy from Brooklyn like me, is use it or lose it or something like that, you know. But you need to get moving. You need to, you know, that, that, that's what this is, comes from one of our famous generals. So I had suggested that I would be going through information that goes through um, how better acute pain management might actually lead to improved outcomes. And so we're going to go through a variety of, of articles. This is a, a study of an analysis by Joel Katz. Um, showing that acute pain, this is 1996, so it's not like we just learned about this last year, acute pain after thoracic surgery predicted long-term post-thoracotomy pain. Again, evidence that better management is associated with better outcomes. This study showed as a prospective study of chronic pain after uh, groin hernia repair, 1998. 1998. So for those of you who thought it wasn't a big deal, it is a big deal. There may be new data coming out with improved surgical techniques that maybe will reduce this, but based upon you know, past open um, hernia repairs, this is where we were at. Um, this study shows the consequences of inadequate postoperative pain relief and chronic persistent postoperative pain. Again, this is now in 2005. Um, preventing the burden of chronic pain by identifying and treating risk factors in acute pain. Going back to the shingles analogy, if you institute antivirals, provide analgesics, shorten the duration of the viral infection, reduce the acute pain, 
that's the time, for example, to do interventions that six, you know, two years later when they have post-hepatic neuralgia, that can, that can reduce, that, that alone can reduce the likelihood of a person developing prolonged um, acute uh, 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 post-herpetic neuralgic pain. So the analogy kind of an, uh, is that in any setting where, there, where you can reduce acute pain, you may be able to treat um, and reduce the risk of chronic pain. Uh, Dr. Kellett is from Norway, um, and this is a Lancet article where he just went over in a, a review, uh, persistent post-surgical pain, risk factors, and prevention. And he notes in his first line, if you notice this, that acute postoperative pain is followed by persistent pain in 10 to 50% of individuals after common operations. So just reemphasizing that point. This article looks at pre-amputation pain and acute pain that can predict chronic pain after lower extremity uh, amputation. This is a study from the University of Washington um, where these individuals work. When does acute pain become chronic? Uh, again, in, in the acute pain setting, uh, very important article in 2010, and preventing chronic pain following acute pain, risk factors, preventative strategies, and their efficacy. This comes out of uh, Dr. Rogers' group in, um, and Michael Boutrous is now in St. Louis, but this group has demonstrated, um, this is a, a, a supplement to the European Journal of Pain that highlighted risk factors and preventive strategies to prevent the chronification of acute pain. So now let's turn our attention to just conventional approaches with opioid management. I mean, opioid use in pain management is ubiquitous. It's especially, remember the CDC guidelines. How many of you are familiar with CDC guidelines? The CDC guidelines do not necessarily apply to acute pain, although many, um, how many of you, if any, live in states where, and this doesn't really apply to post-surgical pain, but actually, although it may, especially for day surgery, so I take that back. Um, but Massachusetts, New York, and other states have now implemented laws where an initial tre uh, prescription for acute pain can only is limited to anywhere from three to seven days, depending upon the state. So that if somebody needs an opiate beyond that for acute pain, they have to come back or they have to you know, somehow interact with their provider and be reevaluated for additional opioid therapy. The concern is, is, is really great that, uh, how many of you have children? How many of your children have undergone wisdom tooth extractions? How many of you had the experience, um, and we talked about this once, you in the back there, uh, and I about this, I think. Um, but how many of you had experience where you're, I've had experience in different geographic areas where each of our older children who underwent a wisdom tooth extraction left with a 60-pill hydrocodone acetaminophen preparation and before it went from to Schedule two refills as well. The, the idea there was that we don't ever want to see you again, so here's a lot of pills and put the extra ones in your, I mean, crazy, crazy kind of behaviors. That's where that law came from. But still, the idea is that um, opioids are commonly used. Only 5% of people in this survey that was done recently um, were using non-opioid options only for acute pain management. So a lot of people. So opioid analgesic myotherapy is recommended in general um, for all levels of postoperative pain. Mild pain, opioids. Moderate pain, more opioids. Severe pain, even more opioids. I know they're not precise terms. But you know, this is what's being recommended. As, this is what has been recommended. And so that they do remain, in general, as an effective treatment for acute pain. They 
there is no area of your nervous system. How many, anybody here at the Why Skin Matters lecture earlier? No? Okay, so um, that's okay. Um, but we just did a presentation, and the scientists who I presented with um, in our group at Albany Medical College with the University of Arizona were the first to ever show that opioid, uh, opioids are expressed in your keratinocytes, the cells I just sloughed off my hand. So opioid receptors and opioid pharmacology is everywhere in your body, everywhere in your nervous system. And so there are, you know, opioids bind everywhere. They don't necessarily, the conventional opioids that are used don't necessarily say, I'm only going to go to the receptors that are responsible for pain relief for this type of operation. So they're all over the place. So they may have good efficacy. Um, they may have a good side effect profile and safety profile in some ways. And there are multiple agents that are available for us to, to use them. And there are certainly multiple delivery systems. However, Look at any side effect. This is um, 2003 data. 80% of people who are exposed to opioids in the acute pain in a post-operative setting have at least one side effect. You can see 56% drowsiness. Even, and we were just talking about this with some colleagues, that even a people treated who are naive to opioids develop constipation rather rapidly. You know, now that we have um, available treatments for opioid-induced constipation for chronic pain, it's ironic that it starts in it with maybe acute pain management as well. And so constipation was the second most common specific side effect uh, of the overall 80%. Of course, some people can be so unfortunate they have more than one. And you can see many people have side effects, including serious ones like respiratory depression. Respiratory depression study um, published in, in, in 2006 showed that respiratory depression and cardiac arrest with morphine was often unpredictable based upon dose. How many of you feel warm and fuzzy about that? You're in the hospital, you're giving morphine postoperatively, you don't know what dose is going to result in a, in a disastrous consequence. Nobody raised their hand, which I think is the right answer in response. Nobody would be happy with that. Um, length of stay. This is really, really interesting. Um, when people have a, a, adverse drug effects, so from a pharmacoeconomic point of view, if somebody has an adverse drug outcome, an adverse drug reaction, they may stay in the hospital longer. In this study, nine days versus five. That translates to, into a cost to the system that's greater. So there are, are many reasons to think of how can we do things better. Even patients have concerns that may hinder treatment. They're concerned about experiencing vomiting. They're concerned about constipation. They're concerned about itchiness. Remember that opioids induce itchiness, not because many people get labeled as having an opioid allergy when they're itchy, but most of you probably know that it is not, it, there are, I guess, some true allergies, but most of it is activation of histamine, which is one of the properties that opioids have. Um, so that, that can be a major uh, issue. So what we're, obviously, this is, we, we know we want to have better and con more consistent analgesia. We want to have minimal adverse events and patient satisfaction. How many of you work in health systems where you're a judge, where you have somebody like a police officer coming to you every day and said, how come that person gave you an 8, a 7.7 on your patient satisfaction score, not an 8? You know, we have to get an 8. You know that, right? It's really crazy. Um, do you know also that CMS, I don't know if they finalized this yet, but CMS is removing pain. They're still going to ask the question, but they're not going to ding us or ding hospitals for that for poor scores, which you know could be. Yes. 
Yes. Right. And you, you can understand there's data to support their concern, and maybe this is a long time coming, and it was very maybe short-sighted of them in the first place to include it. But you know that CEO, I work in a large medical center, and I respect, look, it, it's a good place overall, but they ran to treat, high, you know, I, it got to the point, and I'm sorry I'm straying for one second, but it got to the point where I would say, go in and say hello to a patient, and they would say, hi, I'm a seven. They didn't say, hi, I'm Joe, or... They, 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 just want, they just want me to know their pain levels so we could treat their pain level because we were treating to pain levels. So. The key is really, really crucial. I hear about the numbers. Really yeah. Crucial. Sure. Yeah. All right. So our goal is to balance all these imperatives and try to achieve pain relief without any um, oh, without unacceptable side effects. So there is... Just like there is a major processing system to experience pain, there is a area, multiple targets to call into. into um, you know, how many people remember blood, sweat, and tears? Am I the only older person here? Blood, sweat, and tears, and 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 um, spinning wheel. Anyone know the song Spinning Wheel? Right. What must what goes up must come down. So all the factors that facilitate pain or block pain that are ascending. Remember, you have competing interests to what gets north to the brain. Have descend, this descending modulation. There are factors in your brain and brainstem that can facilitate pain and those that can inhibit pain. So you obviously, you want to call upon uh, approaches for descending modulation. You want to call upon uh, local anesthetics, even regional anesthetic approaches, epidural anesthetic approaches, which will be higher up in, in, the, in the central nervous system. Uh, there are now intraoperative use of alpha-2 agonists like um, um, clonidine and um, others, um, as well as epidural use of opioids and, and local anesthetics together. Uh, some in, in, operations are carried out with peripheral nerve block as well as general anesthesia. And so there are many opportunities to consider um, interacting with the peripheral and central nervous system at multiple points to understand the importance of doing that because of multiple pain mechanisms. And so here are a number of kind of uh, uh, approach, approaches that may improve pain management and reduce safety risk in so the use of IV acetaminophen in combination with other agents or alone, local anesthetics. Ketamine is used very commonly in many institutions, intraoperatively, postoperatively. Uh, gabapentin and pregabalin, pre and post, the alpha-2 adrenergic agonists are either clonidine or dexmedetomidine. By the way, is clonidine officially FDA approved for pain treatment? You're the first person in a decade who knew that. That's great. Usually people say no. Uh, but duracline is epidurally administered clonidine, which has been FDA approved for years for neuropathic, significant, uh, for severe neuropathic pain. So, um, so the alpha-2 mechanism, the only reason I bring that up, the alpha-2 mechanism does work. Um, Non-pharmacologic approaches and novel analgesics. So here's a study in which is used in opioid-dependent patients undergoing spine surgery. It decreased, take-home message here, is that there was a reduction in opioid use and a reduction in time to discharge. These were basically, although the hospital discharge was not uh, statistically significant, the decrease uh, compared to placebo, um, other measures were, including 24-hour use of morphine, 48-hour use of morphine, 48-hour, uh, uh, six-week morphine milligram per hour equivalents, um, and six-week visual analog scale. 
So a, a, a multimodal or balanced approach to analgesia seeks to, re, to be opioid sparing and to reduce related side effects, um, and that's important. Um, so you look at monotherapy on the left, and you look at mono, a multimodal analgesia on the right, uh, keeping in mind that there are a number of, of, of ways of doing that, even within opioids. If you think about it, dipenadol is a unique opioid in the sense that it has both opioid and non-opioid mechanisms um, and may offer in certain patients certain benefits. Okay, and these are guidelines that were published in 2012 from the ASA, American Society of Anesthesia Task Force on Acute Pain Management, which basically say, quote, whenever possible, anesthesiologists should employ multimodal pain management therapy unless contraindicated all patients should receive an around-the-clock regimen of NSAIDs, coxibs, or acetaminophen. So let's shift now and talk about enhanced recovery after surgery. This is an interdisciplinary, world, a multimodal kind of concept to accelerate post-operative improvements in, in convalescence and reduce general morbidity, morbidity by simultaneously applying several interventions and it reexamines what we're doing currently, replacing them with evidence-based best practices when available and necessary, and it's really comprehensive. So it's based upon reducing length of stay and complications, reducing variability, reducing cost, improving quality of care, and increasing value. So here is the concept of ERAS, enhanced recovery after surgery. So there's pre-admission counseling and education. There's selected bowel preparation, carbohydrate loading, goal-directed fluid therapy, avoidance of sodium fluid over non-opioid analgesic use, epidural anesthesia analgesia, again, to help reduce uh, systemic agents, prevention of nausea and vomiting. So that's very important as well. That keeps people in the hospital. Short-acting anesthetic agents, laparoscopic without drains. So that's where we may see down the line better outcomes with laparoscopically done hernia repairs compared to open. Uh, no NG tubes, warm air body heating, early removal you know, of catheters, early mobilization, early oral nutrition, and you know, <laughs> an audit of whether or not you're actually doing this. Okay? So there are a lot of factors. And here is um, a, a study that to show that with enhanced recovery, there were better outcomes. So, so people were able to basically uh, have a shorter reduction of stay as a result of implementation, regardless of whether or not it was an open or laparoscopically done procedure um, for colorectal surgery, you had benefits by implementing ERS. So let's talk in the next couple of minutes about some exciting novel um, approaches. And so um, this is kind of cool stuff, uh, and so I hope that you agree. Um, there are, in development, novel mu receptor gene protein pathway specific. So you'll see this is the um, abbreviation that's going to be used, um, gene, G protein selective um, agents that may safely manage acute pain that, while mitigating adverse events. So what do these things do? So basically, um, when the mu receptor, mu opioid receptor is activated, and I want you, this work, this clinical development has come out of Nobel Prize winning science. So when the mu receptor is, or an opioid receptor is, many receptors, but we'll focus on mu receptor right now, is activated, it, is a, it will, depending upon the agent, activate other downstream pathways. So 
In this case, the beta-arrestin pathway is a pathway that is turned on by a mu receptor agonist, a traditional mu receptor agonist, but it's the beta-arrestin pathway that is responsible for the worst side effects. Now, the analgesic benefits of mu receptor activation have other downstream pathways that are activated. So is it possible, with understanding of selectivity within the mu receptor and, and, and how we may use gene G protein pathway selective approaches, and this is, again, the, where the Nobel Prize work, winning work came from, understanding that you could selectively activate certain of these downstream pathways when you turned on the receptor. That by using certain agents, you didn't have to turn on all these downstream pathways. Supposing you only want three of the switches turned on and not two. That's exactly where this science is at. And Robert Lefkowitz, who's at Duke University, won the Nobel Prize for that. He also actually spoke at our institution about 10 years ago about this very subject as well. Uh, every year we give out a scientific prize at Albany Med, and he had won it. So I'll disclose that. So when the beta arrestin uh, pathway is less activated, and first of all, first and foremost, and I'm sorry I skipped this step, animals benefit analgesic-wise from these G-protein-selective mu receptor agents. There is lower beta-arrestin pathway activation. So if you use a mu G-protein-selective agent, which can still activate the analgesic downstream mechanisms of the, op of the mu receptor, but not the beta-arrestin pathway, they had less uh, respiratory and gastrointestinal adverse events versus morphine in animal studies. So that's kind of cool. So in animal studies show analgesic, yes, side effects, less. That's really cool. So that has led to the development of oloceridine, which is being developed by um, active in phase three trials. So it's actually factually you know, in development right now. And there are other agents that are also being developed that are a mu G protein selective agent. And I'm going to show you some data from initial studies, if that's okay with you, to show how this may actually benefit human beings, not only other animals. So in preclinical data, hypothetically, you see in this setting, conventional opioids, when they activate the mu receptor, they activate both a G-protein-specific pathway and the beta-arrestin pathway, as well as maybe other downstream mechanisms as well. Well, the beta-arrestin pathway activation is what leads to the opioid-related adverse events. The G-protein-selective pathway activation is what leads to analgesic benefit, and you get the kind of profile that we've been seeing for years. Preclinically and hypothetically, it would be hypothesized that the GPS or the G-protein-specific agent would activate the mu receptor, but by being selective, it doesn't activate every downstream pathway. So now the beta-arrestin pathway is not being activated. That, leads to re that should lead to reduce opioid-related adverse events, good analgesia, and an overall better improved analgesic profile. So this is just work to show that this is really what's happened um, in cell culture. Let's go beyond that. I, uh, um, and this as well. And let's just look at what we know about conventional agents. The 
ideal is to have an, the ideal agent would have less beta arrestin pathway activation and more mu G protein selective or cyclic AMP um, activation and a higher ratio of this pathway to that pathway. If you see fentanyl, fentanyl, morphine, hydromorphone, oxymorphone, oxycodone, these ratios are much lower because the beta arrestin pathways are activated. So you'd expect, based upon this approach, that the higher the ratio, the better the analgesia compared to the side effects. So now let's look at initial clinical data. So these are studies that have been already completed in which a G-protein selective agent has been used compared to morphine or placebo. Small numbers, but interesting data. And you can see that in this phase two uh, abdominoplasty trial, uh, patients receiving a G-protein selective agent were titrated via IVPCA to equianalgesia compared to morphine. And you can see that, oops, I'm sorry, oloceridine is the G-protein selective agent. And you can see at different doses, here's the morphine dose and placebo. And you can see um, that, there, that the, the change in numeric pain um, rating scale score over the study time. And you can see that placebo stays high and that all the three active treatments go down. At equianalgesic doses, the patients who receive the G-protein selective agent experienced fewer side effects, respiratory side effects compared to morphine. So you can see the percent of patients with respiratory safety events versus placebo, which you'd expect to be the lowest. This is the lower dose of the G-protein selective agent, and this is even the higher dose. So any, at either dose, it was statistically significantly lower. So common GI, somnolent sedation, or opioid-related adverse events also occurred less frequently with the G-protein selective agent compared to conventional morphine. So this may, this approach, if it ever comes to market, and there are other, you know, there are many, there are several agents that are currently being developed. Selective G-protein signaling um, may actually provide for robust um, analgesic efficacy. The minimal beta arrestin uh, pathway recruitment may translate into reduction of common opioid-related side effects, as well, including those that are most serious and those which are bothersome such as nausea and vomiting, but still have significant pharmacoeconomic impact. And so this may be an opioid approach or another acute pain approach that can be part of a multimodal regimen, um, but one that re may replace conventional opioid use in the future because of its greater you know, equal analgesic ben benefit, but much greater safety benefit. So, I hope this is interesting to you. I thank you for your time. Be happy to answer questions. We still have a few minutes. Um, and I think that these points are, have already been emphasized. Um, that even, even um, this is not the answer, because certainly ERAS, you know, enhanced recovery after surgery, the use of multimodal analgesic regimens, in particular, these last three bullet points are really the most important to really integrate, because um, this is a big potential game changer in, in, in the future. But so, so are these, and these have always been established as being very helpful. Um, we are stuck very often now with traditional opioid analgesics, but hopefully we will have um, better and more safe uh, and equally effective ones going forward. So thank you very much for your time. Any questions, comments, potatoes you want to throw in here?
No, 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 no. So um, right now, to the best of my knowledge, the only agents that are being developed of the new uh, G-protein selective agents are given intravenously. Um, you know, whether or not down the line you see something that's oral on your, on your, on your phone? I, I do not believe that anything that is considered a G-protein selective agent for acute pain is, un, is like in phase three clinical trial. If I'm wrong, I apologize. Right. Okay. Other questions? So I don't know the answer to that. I, I don't know if at this point, uh, I've not seen any data personally. Um, there's no data published about it. Um, I think that um, I can try, if you give me your card, I can try to find out more about that. But that certainly would be, at, you know, very often in drug and product development, you get to, when, as you get closer to the actual point of it's actually being available and used, <laughs> you, the, the FDA will ask about that, number one. Uh, maybe there are studies being done right now that I'm not completely aware of. And also, there will be a, a, a more interest in doing that because it's going to be an actual product available. It's a great question. Other questions? Well, thank you very much and have a great rest of the day.